Father God, we give you thanks for the privilege it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet we hear these words this morning and we're challenged and maybe even intimidated. Lord, it sounds harsh and hard, but we know that it is as your servant Moses declared, uh, you are our life. This is the way of life. So show us, Lord, open the scriptures to us through the preaching of your word this morning. Give me the ability to speak and give us all the ability to receive the truth of God's word. And in receiving it, live it out and find that it is indeed the life that is truly life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, so much for Christian family values. (laughs) Seriously, Jesus, Jesus has got a tone. Jesus has a tone here. Why is he speaking like this? Well, first of all, we need to remember that chapter 14 is a part of Luke's travel narrative. Jesus is on the journey to Jerusalem, and he knows that that will end in him being rejected and mocked and tortured and executed on a shameful Roman cross. This is all about to get real. And so our Lord feels the seriousness of God's mission of redemption that he will carry out, and he wants his followers to know that to follow him means each of our lives, each of our lives, and this is critical, will necessarily involve suffering at the very point where God's kingdom and the fallen world intersect in our lives. So all of us, every Christian, will experience suffering at the very point where God's kingdom and the fallen world intersect in our lives. And the second reason he speaks like this is because He loves us so much that he tells us the truth about what it means to follow him. He's not burying the lead. He's not over-promising and under-delivering. He wants us to know what it really means. At the pinnacle of his popularity, when great crowds are following him, he speaks the hard word of discipleship. And it is a hard word of discipleship. But, you know, we live in a very sort of fragile time, emotionally fragile time, We live in a morally innervated culture that cannot bear the truth of God's word where it challenges us on an uncomfortably personal level. And yet, beloved, Jesus meant for these words to be triggering. He meant for these words to trigger us, to pierce our hard, dissipated, and sleepy hearts with the truths of discipleship. So in keeping with this, with the very clarity of the text that we just read and the rather stark clarity of that text, this is going to be a very simple sermon. So following the text, here's where we're going to go this morning. Get ready. First of all, following Jesus will cost you everything. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Secondly, following Jesus is worth the cost. And finally, there are three contemporary arenas, there are many more, but three contemporary arenas that I want us to identify that we will live that out in our own lives, where the cost, where it will cost us, and it is worth the cost. Three contemporary arenas where we live this out. But first of all, being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus means undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. R.J. Karras said that discipleship 
is not periodic volunteer work on one's own terms and at one's own convenience. Discipleship is not periodic volunteer work on one's own terms and at one's own convenience. <clears throat> no, instead it means loving and desiring Jesus Christ above everything else in our lives. Loving and desiring Jesus above everything else in our lives. So Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 26, we heard it, say it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate your mama, hate your daddy, your wife, your kids, hate your own life. Why is Jesus calling us to be a bunch of haters? Well, like I said, he seems to have horrible family values in this passage. So what's really going on? Well, of course, Jesus is not calling us literally to hate our families. He is using a teaching method to make sure we understand and remember what he has said. It's a method called rabbinic hyperbole. It's very common in Jewish rabbinic teaching. He's using rabbinic hyperbole to hammer home the point that loyalty to Jesus has to surpass, this is what discipleship means, loyalty to Jesus Christ has to surpass every other loyalty in our lives. Now, you think that sounds radical to us today, but in the ancient Near East, family was everything. And still, by the way, in many traditional cultures to this day, the same thing is true. This, this culture that Jesus is speaking to in first century Palestine was not an individualistic society. And Jesus is saying to them and to us that the most compelling, most fundamental loyalties of our lives have to pale in comparison to our loyalty to him. That means that we follow Jesus with such devotion, we follow him with such devotion that if we ever have to choose between family and Jesus, we choose Jesus. And some people in this church have had to make that choice. And when he says we have to hate our own lives, he is saying that we have to choose between, listen, living for ourselves or living for him. Living for ourselves or living for him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality in discipleship. And at this point, Jesus directly confronts the autonomous, expressive individualism of our day. Jesus tells us, and this is the point, if you follow me, you can no longer be sovereign over yourself. If you follow me, you can no longer be sovereign over yourself. He goes on to make his demand even more emphatic. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says that if we are to follow him, it means that we are aware that this kind of commitment will invite suffering. If you have to bear your cross. It invites suffering into our lives. The cross was an instrument of suffering and death. Now, I just want to stop right there and say, since we are not Buddhists, you know, Buddhists, you know, one of the tacits, uh, one of the tenets of Buddhism is life is suffering. Well, we're not Buddhists. So why? Why is this the case? Why is suffering a component of discipleship? Well, because wherever the kingdom of God, this is what, where suffering comes into our lives. Wherever the kingdom of God and the world, the flesh, and the devil collide, so wherever the kingdom of God and the world, the flesh, our own desires, our anti-God desires, and the devil collide, those anti-God powers 
lash out against God's reign, and that's where suffering comes in. Suffering as a follower of Jesus is like a seal of authenticity on our discipleship. But suffering is not an end in itself. Like I said, we are not Buddhists. It perfects us in grace, grants us greater connection to Jesus, because as we offer our suffering to Christ, we are joined to his wounds in a profound way. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, it is the path to glory. And not just in the life to come, but in this life as well. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also, what? Be glorified, glorified with him. It is the path to glory. Now, all of what I've just spoken to you, what we've just read, could sound pretty bleak and dreary. It certainly could, until we remember this. And this is so important, that throughout the Gospels, and in any, and in any number of ways, Jesus promises his disciples abundant life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus promises you and me abundant life. And not just after this life, but in this life. So joy and peace and plenty in the kingdom of God. And that Deuteronomy passage helps us to understand that this kind of single-hearted devotion is actually, that single-hearted loyalty to God through Jesus Christ is the pathway to life. I call, this is Moses speaking in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. And here's, listen to this key phrase, for he is your life. Did you get that? <clears throat> Moses tells the children of Israel that God is their life. God is their life. I am witnessing the living out of a metaphysical fiction in our era, in our post-Christian, post-modern society. People have the idea that they're, first of all, if they ever think about God at all, that they can have a flourishing, happy, fulfilled rich, textured, deep life apart from any connection to God. And they, they sincerely believe this. And it always doesn't work out. Right this minute, we have the highest level of mental illness in our culture, especially among youth, children, and teenagers that we have ever experienced. Part of it got exacerbated through covid but it's not just because of COVID. There was actually, it was on the New York Times podcast this week. Yay, Pastor Ben said New York Times. We are so relieved uh, that you read that or listened to that. But it was uh, this week, the, the, um, the Daily, uh, one of the podcasts talked about that uh, this rise and the different things that are causing this rise in mental illness among our youth and older people as well. 
Some of it had to do with the COVID lockdown. Some of it has to do with the ubiquity of technology and being overloaded with information. But of course, the thing that was left out was people don't have any ultimate purpose in their life. If you don't have anything beyond your own desires and plans and passions, your own ideologies and biases, if that's all you have, your life is necessarily going to be meaningless, ultimately. And most of that, I think, of what we're experiencing right now, of the rise in suicide and mental illness, has a component of the people recognizing the meaninglessness of their existence, purposelessness. Human beings cannot live without meaning and purpose. God, it says here, for he is your life. But the core of Adam's sin and all of our sin is to seek to live independently from God, to basically have the life we want and perhaps occasionally include God, occasionally. And so at most, God becomes an accessory to our otherwise self satisfied and self-directed lives. But, beloved, there is no life in that arrangement, ultimately. The result of radical devotion to Jesus Christ that our Lord calls for here in Luke 14 and then in Deuteronomy 30 is life. You know, uh, I love that saying. I don't know who came up with it, but it's, it's so true. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Please listen. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. He is our life. Paul calls that the life. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, this is the life that is truly life. Now, we think that this kind of life sounds like the singleness of devotion to Christ sounds like drudgery, but that's the devil's lie. The divided heart does not know joy. God wants us to find life and joy, but the only path to that is via loving Jesus and following him with such loyalty that every other loyalty and love looks like hate in comparison. The best way to explain this is really a one-verse parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 13, verse, 13, verse 44. One parable, one verse. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like, a tre- is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found... And covered up. And then listen to what it says. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus is the embodiment of this hidden treasure and he is worth it. Selling all you have. The the renunciation of everything in comparison to loyalty to Christ is where joy enters into the equation. He is worth it. You know, in every era, every era, human era, single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ will bring us into conflict with our own culture and also with our own personal desires and agendas. That single-minded devotion brings us into conflict with our, with, our, with our culture around us and with our own internal desires and agendas. In the Roman world, here's a point of conflict in the Roman world, our prioritizing, the Christian prioritizing of the weak and the broken and the poor 
was met with scorn and derision. It was seen as ridiculous and morally defective because Romans prize strength and fortitude, not weakness. In fact, when they criticized it, uh, Celsus, one of the early critics of Christianity, said it's a religion for slaves and women. That's supposed to hurt. And the Christians said, yeah, we'll, we'll accept those terms. You're right, it is. And for everybody else, too. So that was seen as being bad. But right now, that same commitment in our day, 2,000 years later, to serve the weak and the poor is seen as one of the few positive traits of Christianity by the surrounding culture. The point at which following Jesus is abrasive to the surrounding culture and personally challenging for us, those points have shifted over the years. So here are three contemporary challenges. This is not the whole list. There are many others. But I think these are very, very pointed and really do speak to many of us this morning. These are three contemporary challenges for us all to consider that are rooted in this passage. Jesus makes it very clear here. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It means loving, first of all, first challenge, it means loving Jesus more than my sexuality. Now, this is relevant to all of us because all of us experience sexual brokenness due to the primordial rebellion of humanity against God in the garden. But following Jesus means renouncing expressing our sexuality in a way that is contrary to our Lord's own definition and commandments. But in the words of Carl Truman, the sexual revolution of the 1960s has now developed as to require, it's now we're at the point as to require the, this is quoting him, as to require the positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such traditional views has come to be seen as ridiculous and even as a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. Now you think you know where I'm going with this, but you don't. Here's the deal. I was just talking to a, uh, a pastor in Virginia this past week, and one of the, he has seen a trend that is, is now present in our society breaking into the church. And it's called anti-familialism and not anti-natalism. Uh, so anti-family and anti-birth, right? So right now, by the way, we have the lowest birth rate in, in the United States that we have ever had, ever recorded. I think it's down to 1.71 per, per couple. Lowest ever. Not, that's not replacement rate. Europe is seeing worse. South Korea is, the, is in the worst decline of any nation in the world. It's anti-natalism, anti-baby, anti-family. And this anti-familialism, say that three times fast, is the latest and dreariest expression of the sexual revolution. And it's gaining a foothold in our churches. We've always, now listen, I, I want you to hear this. We have always honored singleness throughout the Christian tradition as an extraordinary, extraordinary means of grace in the Christian life that is commended by St. Paul and exemplified in the life of Jesus. It's an extraordinary means of grace. 
Yet the creation mandate remains the ordinary means of grace, and it remains in effect, and it reveals God's intention for our sexuality, as Jesus says in Matthew 19. Listen, this is what it says. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 19. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's the point I would make. I'm going to quote Father Benji. He's quite quotable. And I love this when he said it. He says, getting, he says, getting married and having babies is an act of Christian resistance in our age. Getting married and having babies is an act of Christian resistance in this age. There's a whole lot of Christian resistance going on at Christ Church. So to the, to the point of loving Jesus, he says in this setting, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, do you love me more than your sexual autonomy? Do you love me more than your sexual autonomy? The second, the second challenging arena is that it means loving Jesus more than my job. We have to develop a theology of being fired. That's not my expression. I think it's a great line, though. We have to develop a theology of being fired. Will you stand without compromise with Jesus Christ and his apostles on issues of human sexuality and the sanctity of human life, even though you can lose your professional memberships, your career, your good name, and your income? This is where the culture is pushing back hardest right now on the Christian faith, on those points. You see, here's what I mean. In contrast, um, well, the, the, to, to take that point and, and expand on it, if you work for Apple or Google or Facebook or Starbucks or a university or maybe even a municipality or any number of corporations, large or small, and declare that your Christian convictions make you love your enemies, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. People are fine with that, aren't they? My Christian convictions make me love my enemies. Oh, good, good. That's a good thing. We like that. Or, uh, or if your Christian convictions make you passionate about stewarding God's good creation, about caring for creation, caring for the environment. Nobody is going to be mad at you about that. You're, you're going to get an attaboy, and yet that is a part of our Christian conviction, that we are stewards over creation. We're to care for this intended and to present it back as more beautiful and fertile to God. But if you say your Christian convictions mean that you cannot support Christian, uh, you cannot support same-sex marriage or abortion, you are likely to lose your job or your business, you may even get fined or go to jail. Jesus says, do you love me more than you love your job? Do you love me more than you love your job? Uh, I heard about a situation. Um, um, it's a Christian family in the triangle. This, there's probably many situations exactly what I'm going to describe to you. So if you think it's about somebody you know, no, it's just general. But uh, the family has a daughter 
in middle school, and the daughter has been having some tendentious conversations with school counselors and teachers, and she has come to the conclusion that she's not really a girl at all. She's a boy. Her body's just a girl's body, but she's really a boy, and she needs to transition. And the school made it very clear in an unofficial way to the parents who are Christians that if you push back on this in any way, you will be visited by Child Protective Services and your child will be removed from your home. Now that's just a travesty. But when I heard that, and I heard how, uh, how the family was just very, very upset, and I'm, I'm not judging this family, I, I'm just saying this is what would occur to me. I'm going to get my child and we are going to move and leave this community. And I began to think, well, what could possibly keep somebody in a community like that when your child is per perhaps going to be physically mutilated by this demonic ideology? Well, I've got a great job. It's a prestigious job with a good income, and I really can't leave that here in the research triangle. You have loved your job, not just more than Jesus, more than your child. Leave your job and go somewhere else where this will not be a possibility. Here's the, here's the third contemporary application that applies to all of us right now. And we thought the others were pointed. This is... This is going to, to meddling even. I mean, this is from preaching to meddling right here. But if following Jesus means renouncing, being willing to let go of everything, then, then our giving to the work of the kingdom of God, our financial support of the king, work of the kingdom of God will reflect that. Our financial discipleship, our financial discipleship is an indicator, a telltale of what we really love most. What do we prioritize over giving to the kingdom of God? In other words, what will we spend our funds on in preference to giving to the work of the gospel? What makes us say, I cannot give a tenth of my income this month because I choose to spend that money on this other thing? Jesus says, do you love me more than that other thing? So the following questions might trigger us. Jesus says, do you love me more than your grandchildren? I can't tithe because I'm giving all my money to my grandchildren. You have loved your grandchildren more than Jesus. Jesus says, do you love me more than, because this is a point of discipleship. Do you love me more than your family vacation? I can't give to the kingdom of God. I can't give to missions. I can't do those things because, hey, man, we're going on a big expensive family vacation. Do you love me more than your home improvement project? I really can't give to the kingdom right now because, you know, I'm doing all these home improvement things. And here's a challenging idea. Loving Jesus first means we prioritize the kingdom of God over our children's college education. In other words, do I trust Jesus so much with my family's life, my kids' futures, that I will give a tenth to the kingdom of God rather than hoarding wealth, hoarding wealth for college education. If we cannot give a tenth of our income, we are likely 
this is, this is critical. It's true. If it makes you mad to hear a pastor talk about money like this, well, you're just going to be mad today because I believe this, and I live this, and I believe it and live it because it's in the Bible. So if we cannot give a tenth of our income, we are likely going to be unprepared. If we can't give up that, we will likely be able to be unprepared to give up our jobs, our liberties, or our lives, which will cost us much more if we have to make the choice between loving Jesus first. Now, I know that saying things like this invites me to be put to the test as your pastor, but I pray that God will give me the grace to be found faithful so that I will not fail that test, but I also want you to know that Lisa and I have already faced each of those scenarios that I just laid out, and we have not reduced our giving. So what does it cost to follow Jesus Christ? It will cost you everything. God wants you to experience abundant life right now, but in the strange economy of the kingdom of God, you have to give up your life to find life. Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, we, we can't live that kind of single-minded devotion under the power of the flesh. We are going to have, we have to have the energizing grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to nerve us for this struggle, to find the life that is truly life. Where, oh, where could we find that grace? I need some of that grace. Well, starting at this table, at this meal, is a wonderful place to encounter the real presence of the one who said, unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my follower, and come to him and say, Lord, I want to do that, but I don't have the power to do that. I don't even know what that looks like. Help me, Jesus. I know that you are good. Show me the way that leads to life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.